welcome to the Shenanacast. I'm your host, Sensaku. With me is... Units. And... Shadow Chorus. Alright. Uh, we actually did it right for once. Well, you, no, we didn't because none of us names. gave our real names. It's, not, it's, it's fine. They know our real names by now. Uh, and if they don't, go back and listen to the last two podcasts. Aha! Uh-huh. It's called advertising. Uh, and so today we want to talk about a sort of long-running game series... Uh, you know, sort of game series that have, that have gone through multiple different, not only multiple different iterations, but multiple different generations of you know of gameplay. And, and the one that comes to mind first, as everybody is tired of listening to me talk about, but I've got to put it out there. Final Zero Adventure Games, Zero <laughs> <laughs> Adventure Games, and Final Fantasy. Um, Final Fantasy having gone through not only multiple iterations, but multiple platforms. It's been on everything from the original Nintendo, Super Nintendo, uh, PS1, PS2, PS3, Xbox 360. I don't know. Was there? Yeah, there was. There was. There, there was, was a Final Fantasy game on Xbox 360. There was one. It's been on. It's been on every Xbox it, One. It's been on everything coming out of Japan, and then finally 360. Yeah, Xbox 360, one. Xbox One. Was it on the Sega? I don't think there was one on Sega Saturn. I don't think there was one on the Saturn or the Dreamcast. Okay, to be fair, Sega Saturn. <laughs> to be fair, there was a Sega Saturn. <laughs> Uh, been on PC. It wasn't on Dreamcast, but Dreamcast wasn't lived long enough. Yeah, it wasn't on Dreamcast. It's been on PC though. Uh, it wasn't on Sega Genesis either. But it was on every. It's been on every Sony platform you can think of. And a bunch of Nintendo ones too. Uh, it's been on several Nintendo platforms, and then it's also been on PC forever. So it's done. So it's a. It, not only is it a multi. It's a multi-console series. It's also multi-generational, multi. You know, multi-iteration. It's got currently. Numbered, there are fourteen. But then there is fourteen two, fourteen three, lightning returns, ten two. Uh, um, there's tactics, tactics advance, tactics advance two. Um, there's two different thirteens. There's, yeah, well, that's three different thirteens. Well, and it's oh, no, they, the other two didn't come out. One did and got shut down, and then Realm Reborn took over. No, that was that was eleven. Sorry, eleven. Oh, that was actually fourteen. No. 14. 14 13, is 13 is lightning. You're confusing me. Yeah, 13 is lightning. 14 is a Realm Reborn. Yeah, four, well, there, there was a Final Fantasy 14 online game, and then it got and, shut down, and, and then, then a Realm Reborn. It became a Realm Reborn. It's all the same game, but it's two different iterations of the same game. And it's, it's and worth, actually, they're very different content-wise. Yeah, they are. It's worth saying that Final Fantasy is also interesting in that... None of the, none of the numbered games are in the same universe. Yeah, none of them occur yeah. on the same world with so, the same characters. characters. Ish. Ish. The exceptions Ish. are like I think one and two. So let's let's start at the beginning with Final Fantasy because it's as you can tell just from the breakdown of the list of games, it's a long story. Um, <clears throat> so the first Final Fantasy actually was meant to be the only Final Fantasy. That's why they called it Final Fantasy. Ironic um, name. It was really popular though, so they you know, made a sequel and it just kept going. Um, they are almost all of them set in a different universe. Some of them have out-of-game connections to one another, and some of them are set in the same universe, just at different time periods. Um, and some of them are theorized. There's fan theories all over the place connecting them. Like there's there's a fan theory that connects Final Fantasy X to Final Fantasy VII, um, and there's and an Evilise is a recurring world uh, that uh, the Final Fantasy Tactics game takes place in, but also Final Fantasy XII takes place. Um, and so there's a lot of most for the most part there's they're separate and disconnected, uh, a, with the exception of direct sequels like Ten and Ten Two, uh, 
uh, Final Fantasy VII, and then all the spinoff games from that, uh, including uh, including Dirge Crisis Cerberus. Core, Dirge of Cerberus, etc. Um, the Tactics games, which are direct sequels from one another, and are not part of the numbered series. Uh, Dissidia. Dissidia. Well, Dissidia is sort of the multiverse coming together. Yeah. It's not the same universe, it's the multiverse. It uses the main deities from the first game, however. Yes, it does use Cosmos the main deities. Cosmos and Chaos from the first game. Uh, which are re- which Cosmos and Chaos are recurring themes, just Cosmos is typically called Holy. Yeah. And Chaos is uh, sometimes called Meteor. <laughs> in Seven. <laughs> sometimes called Meteor. In, in seven. seven, specifically. Um, but they're, 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 they're sort of recurring themes in the whole thing. But the interesting thing is that with each Final Fantasy game, they reiterate upon themselves. And it's not always mechanical, sometimes it's just a storytelling, but each Final Fantasy game brings something new to the table. Or refines something old. Landmarks of things like, you know, with Final Fantasy, I think it was three, was three or four that had Terra. Uh, the one with Terra. Four. Final the Fantasy Four. The one with the one with Kefka. With with Final Fantasy Four, they reinvented the way they tell stories, and they started focusing on an overarching central theme rather than um, rather than just a generic story as they had with the previous three games. Um, and the overarching theme of of that was, I think, it was, it was either hope or insanity. Both. Might be both. Because uh, Kafka was definitely insanity. Yeah, Kafka was the embodiment of insanity, but he was he was the acting. I have to go back and, and restudy the story to, to, to give you a, a better breakdown. But so they started they, with with that they started reinventing the way they tell a story, and that sort of has kept going throughout. Then with Final Fantasy VII, they reinvented the way the players. I think it was seven. Uh, they reinvented the way the players interact with the story because they got rid of classes. I think they still had classes in six. They either they still had classes in either six or five, but in seven they didn't. They did away with they did away with the classic classes style of of, of player interaction, and went into a uh, a more sort of a, a, an omni character, a character that could be any sort of format depending on how you decided to build them. Um, then from seven to eight, they started going into a more high definition visual style. Uh, seven, I think, was also the first not two D. Yeah, seven. Seven was the first three D Final Fantasy game. Though it was in that early awkward it was, polygon it was stage. It was very 3D much polygons. Lots I, and lots of polygons. Everything was polygons. And, and I feel like it's an important thing to note. A lot of long running game series have hit the the three D barrier yeah. differently, and yeah. some of them have not hit nearly as successfully as others. Final Fantasy VII definitely hit very successfully. And and I think that was partly because they used the limitation to make it yeah, funny. They, we they, talked they, about this in the last podcast, how a lot of the comedy is based on the fact that they have chitified characters. Yeah. Um, um, eight took the visual fidelity up. Yeah. And the, the whole point of eight was taking the visual fidelity up to the max. And it, it's gotten to a point where Final Fantasy is, is known for... Beautiful cutscenes. <laughs> yeah. not, not just their... Not just their graphical fidelity, but their artistic style yes. and their ability to tell story through visual. I mean, I've never played a Final Fantasy game longer than fifteen minutes. I just don't get into them. But I have seen and I know about Final Fantasy games just from watching small cutscenes. You can tell the mood, the yeah. the the whole the the setting. 
they're very good. They're, they're, they're very good at telling a story with very few words. Yeah. They're also very good at telling a story with a ton of words that they don't need, but we'll get into that <laughs> later. Um, so they started with eight. They really started coming into that art style. Uh, eight has probably some of the best cut scenes they've ever had. Um, just from you know, and that, that's where they're sort of they started letting their art department kind of go crazy. I still love their uh, opening fight. The scene. opening fight it's scene. Small and it's it's one of the most memorable fight scenes in 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 the game series, and it's ties it ties directly into the story. Like the opening cutscene, the Final Fantasy VII sort of like meanders and shows you the world, but eight you you pick up on the story of eight immediately after that cutscene. It also sets up the sort of the personalities of those two characters. Um, again, with graphic, they, they they were experimenting with their graphical fidelity art style, and then they also were experimenting with the combat system yet again. They changed the way magic works in in, in Final Fantasy VIII. They changed the way summons and, and effects work. Summons became a lot more important. Because they were they were how you used magic by tapping into the power of these what they called guardian forces. And then in ten they became all important. In ten they became all important, um, but that's later. That was a, that's more of a story aspect. Um, <clears throat> so continuing on into nine. Now at nine they decided that they didn't want necessarily the uh, nine is really where their artistic sensibilities kicked in. Because with nine, it wasn't about graphical fidelity anymore. In, in eight, they, in eight, they showed that they were able to make a very good-looking, realistic-looking world. And then in nine, they went the completely other direction and said, "Let's see how cartoony we can make it." And they did, and it was fantastic. How yeah, and it was it was fantastic, and it has a, and it, it's still a good-looking game. Yeah, and that's the beauty of yeah. the the artistic, the cartoony styles is you look at them and yeah, you know. That's how they intended this to look, you know, when you compare, yeah. uh, like, in a different series, I've got more experience with, like, the Legend of Zelda series, Wind Waker looks like they wanted Wind Waker to look. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we said this in the last stream, it's yeah. like, stylized artwork stays the way you want it to look. Exactly. And then in 10, I think, 10 is where they really hit their mark for what they want their games to look like, because from 10 on, they stopped playing around with the, with the look of their game so much. Um, 10 is a very sort of not quite realism style. It's very fantastical. It's, but at the same time, it's very... It's hard to explain. Like The character models all seem like people, but with slightly cartoony coloring. They're... Yeah, yeah they're like... They're, they're, they're half person, half cartoon. Yeah, they're they're not caricatured. They're just... They're eccentric. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's sort of where they, they, they sort of established their art style. They and again, like they were doing cosplay. Yeah, you know, they, they, they're, they're, the, the art style of their game is sort of very... And then that continues on. They played around with the mechanics again there. They kept going, played around with mechanics more. With Eleven, they experimented with massive multiplayer, or with a massive multiplayer RPG. It wasn't all that great successful. Uh, with Twelve, they went kind of back to their roots, but again, messed with the mechanics. Thirteen... They def- 13, they completely overhauled their mechanics and sort of took that part real, part cartoony style of 10 and ramped it to the max um, so that everybody looks gorgeous and weird. Uh, like Saz has, a, Saz has a, a, a baby chocobo living in his hair, in his afro. Um, and, and I think it's important, at this point in, in, in time, 
graphical fidelity and artistic style had accelerated to the point where everybody could make. Yeah. Everybody was making games that looked realistic, games that had realism and cartoon elements. And so to stand out, you you couldn't focus on, well, let's make these characters look realistic. Let's make these characters look, you know, high definition. They had to focus on, well... Let's make, let's, make unique. let's make them stand out. And and regardless of what anybody feels about the game of 13, you cannot deny that their characters and their character design stands out. You don't the minute you see a character, a Final Fantasy character, you know it's a Final Fantasy character. Um, it's they're very very clear cut about what their stuff looks like. And 14 well, the original 14 was it was four, it was weird. It, the original fourteen was eleven two. Uh, <laughs> a realm reborn has made everything fantastic. Like yeah. I I talk with a bunch of friends. I watch them play Final Fantasy fourteen Realm Reborn. Um, they like they've gone so far into the world building with Final Fantasy fourteen Realm Reborn that they're basically say they're basically saying you make your character. But they'll be part of this world. Like, they give you naming conventions for how each of the individual species name themselves. um, It's it's a very... I've I've played around with it. It's a very, very fun sort of lore focus to the character creation. And um, definitely definitely in keeping with their style, with their thematic styles uh, that they've developed over the years. And then 15's coming out soon-ish, whenever. It's supposed uh, to be like one of their mul- like lower level multiplayer focus games. It's like supposed to be like a lot of multiplayer, not yeah in massive scale. So they're yeah they're 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 looking at it. Uh, I'm not sure what they're definitely reinventing mechanics for it, but they're also sort of taking again taking that art style of 13 and making it a little bit more in keeping with their previous art styles. The art style for 15 is being less bombastic. More realistic, it's, but still it's, very, it's returning to eight. Yeah, it's returning very. It's returning very much to the art style they had in eight. Actually, it's a very good comparison, um, where everything's got sleek lines and dark colors, um, and it looks it looks great. We haven't played much. I've played the demo, but that's about it. It, it looks fantastic. We haven't seen much of it yet, um, and the combat system again is very different. So, in the span of one series, and that's just the numbered series. We're not even talking about the offshoots. Yeah. In the span of one series, we've seen them go through numerous graphical, artistic, and mechanical differences that have changed, sometimes very dramatically, sometimes very subtly as they go. Well, and one thing about Final Fantasy that is uh, a unique thing to them is that they do change worlds, and it gives them such an opportunity to start with... A fresh story. A fresh story, and they have consistent elements. They have, like, I know Chocobo and... um, the mogs. mogs are consistent throughout, but they're able to, because they're reinventing an entire world every time, for them to change their art style from one world to the next will fit very well because of the way the world is changing. Yeah, in itself. Um. So, okay. So leave it. So that that's that's an example of, of how one company tends to go with with a long style. So let's let's switch it up a little bit now. So I have um, another company uh, whose game has not only you know, changed across generations. It's also changed what kind of game it is. Multiple which is times. Blizzard. Blizzard has made the starting with specifically with the Warcraft series, has gone drastically different in every iteration. Uh, starting I will argue that one and two 
would not drastically different from one another. Wrong, and I will I will explain why. Okay. So one started out as a as a BIOS game, like you like you had to run it back when you had to run through the BIOS menu. It was you can't even run it on modern PCs anymore without having to run DOSBox. Yeah. Um, and it was this style of it was a single unit RP, like RTS. You only control one thing at a time, and you had to man- and you had to manage your entire army. Yes, that was that was that was, that was one of the big issues with, with Warcraft. Did you control four of them at a time? One. Hmm. I see. Oh, I remember. I remember four. I think but... four. It might have been four. No, I think I think it was four. But there's there's a large difference. It was either one or four. <laughs> so so it was a small a it, much it very 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 scale. small scale. Small scale. Um, and it was this dark, gritty fantasy art style. Because the original orcs and humans, at least this is the tale that gets spread throughout the internet, uh, is was originally planned to be a Warhammer Fantasy game, but the deal fell through, so they said we'll make it our own universe and we'll publish it ourselves. And now, so before we Warcraft. before we go further with that, do we have any? Is is there any like like evidence of that, or is that just a story that it's? Told? It is a story, and there is some evidence of it in some of the art style and some of the portrayal. We don't know for one hundred percent sure. Like, has that been confirmed? I don't think any. But, but, I don't think any blue. Any blue. A blue is a Blizzard employee. Um, has ever confirmed that, but it's something that has a lot of evidence. But, but, in it. What is known is that the art style and the mood changed entirely from from one to two. Uh, because when they went from one to two, everything became brighter, and the characters became more exaggerated. They became more interesting. Um, the orcs went from being marauding, rampaging beasts to being... Even they were still evil in Warcraft 2, but they were more enjoyable. They were more colorful. They were, they were a race that you, could, that you could be interested in instead of just saying, oh, here's another generic fantasy monster race. They, they were more caricaturized. They were, more, they were given more, more of a character. And from there, they, up, they also created the scale of the RTS. You were able to control, at that time, it was still not grand. You couldn't control nine units at once, but you could control nine units and everything within them. Like, that could be, like, transport units could be moving within a, within a squad of ships. And they also added naval combat, the, the addition of ships and the ability to move across. And they added the whole idea of difficult terrain and the idea that you have to get ships to move across water or break through mountains. With with explosives, and they added terrain to the mix more than more than the previous ones had ever tried. Uh, and then from there they moved into Warcraft Three, and this was when they hit. The, the, actually, if we want to, we can continue, we can also include Starcraft, or can we can just move along. Let's keep it But uh, to, to, in order to make the record clear, so while while the while the uh, Warhammer Forty K may or may not be the true origins, the official origin. Of Warcraft Orcs and Humans is that it was a Blizzard's attempt, a Blizzard's answer to uh, Westwood Studios' Command and Conquer mm-hmm. series, which was also released around the same. That time. is the official answer. That yeah. is the official statement by Wiz- by Blizzard, not Wizard Blizzard, um, and that the emphasis is on skillful management of relatively small forces and the development of characterization and storyline within and between games played in the same universe. Yep, that is their official statement. Whether or not that's the truth of the origin of Warcraft Orcs and Humans. Yep. That is, that is, that is, what they, that is their story and they're sticking to it. Yes. Um, 
But moving on to Warcraft 3, this is when they hit the 3D barrier. And they hit it pretty well. Like, they, they knew that they couldn't get supremely high fidelity Especially out of their Warcraft 3 Because models. an RTS is... RTS have problems with large scale. Yeah. Um, in and relation to... with their fixed camera, for the most part. Yeah, so it's difficult to not only have 3D because of the scale, but then to make it relevant because... Because of where your camera is. The camera. At. Yeah. So... Instead, they went with a stylization, which is probably one of their better choices. Um, they went with this, because, because they were using um, a lot of polygonal surfaces and uh, hard angles, they made everything fit with a sort of caricature style, uh, where everything was... Exaggerated in certain areas. Yeah, like, like Hands and arms were bigger than the than, than torso. Yeah. And heads were, you know, very, heads, heads were heads very, very large. And very large. Weapons were very large. Mounts like they, were very large. They and made everything. They made everything significant so you could make it out. And in and in the and in the example of mounted characters, bodies were almost in are were almost inseparable from the mount. It's very hard a lot of times to tell where the body began and where the body ended and the horse or wolf began. And this is this is also <clears throat> where they introduced the concept of hero characters. Which would be... Because in Warcraft 2, you had significant story characters, but they would just use the model of one of your army units. And they'd be slightly better stats And they'd, be, they'd have better stats and have a unique portrait. In Warcraft 3, they introduced heroes, which were unique, special characters that were separate from the rest of your military force. You could only have so many heroes on the battlefield at once. Usually, in multiplayer, a maximum of three. Um... And the hero system allowed them to put more emphasis on the important characters within an RTS. They let it be more about a story than you, the commander. It's more about the characters that you're following. And that was when they made the massive story shift into... Um, yeah, because prior to that, the player character was the commander of the forces. Uh, when in the, the, all the, the story was contained entirely in audio logs before and before between missions. Um, and the audio logs referred to the player character as commander or or warlord or whatever whatever rank your rank was within the army at that time. Yeah, which was a, which was a very common uh, storytelling tactic among strategy games of the day. Uh, you know, Mech Warrior did that. Mech, in, in Command Mech, and Conquer did that. Command and Conquer did that. Mech Warrior did that. Um, all, all the strategy strategy in RTS. And again, Mech Warrior is not quite RTS, but it is also an action strategy game because of the way it's built up. Heavy metal, was it Heavy Gear did that too. Yeah, Heavy Gear was a really fun game, but now tangents. Anyways, back to Warcraft. Um, and so Warcraft Three made the story shift to being about the characters rather than about the commander and his, and his army. That's when they started telling a significant story uh, about you know these important characters and the one theme that is always kept with Warcraft since Warcraft Three onward is war changes people. That's been their one recurring story theme throughout all of Warcraft 3 on, and even some in Warcraft 2, mm -hmm. was the idea that war is this thing that will fundamentally change those who have to suffer through it. And they told that story with the orcs, they told that story with Arthas, they told that story with Jaina, even through the end of World of Warcraft. But the, fundamentals, the fundamental theme they kept was war changes people. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's been their theme 
they've kept they've kept other themes and sub stories within it, but that's been the overarching. If you, if as, you think, as opposed to as opposed to Final Fantasy, where the theme changes for each game, yeah, if they you, kept the theme as a focusing through line of the universe. Of like the if universe. you if you have to say what's one major theme of the Warcraft of, of the Warcraft universe, it's war changes people. Well, I guess, and and uh, the same can be said in, in one aspect with uh, Final Fantasy, whereas. Uh, while, while each game has an individual theme there is an overarching theme through all of their games which is um, man overcoming nature and man overcoming the gods or and, you know you substitute God for any higher power any you know whether it be mortal immortal whatever um, a very much recurring theme every, basically every almost every game you end up the final battle you are fighting a god of some kind yeah. Uh, some some manifestation of of, of a, a principle of the world. So that that's kind of a that's kind of what I do in Final Fantasy. Yeah. But back to Warcraft. Um, and so they've been making these huge mechanical shifts um, through each of the Warcraft games, and then these huge story shift from two to three when they've started focusing on characters. And all this time, the books have been getting written as well, fleshing out the universe and the story. Um, and then just sticking to the Warcraft path for now, uh, they made the shift from Warcraft 3 to World of Warcraft, which was massive. And this was their first attempt to do something this big. They, they made a massively multiplayer online RPG, which worked. It worked pretty well. Really well. It worked a lot. And it was so prior to World of Warcraft, we had EverQuest. I think we had Ultima Online. Ultima Online was the first. The Ultima, Online, Ultima, Ultima Online was the first. Then we had EverQuest after that. Uh, we had RuneScape and a couple of others. I know, um, oh, what's the name of that company? There's a Japanese game company that has been making MMOs for a long time, but they were always 2D artistic. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, even if I can't think of the name. Um... They made they are the guys that run Ragnarok online right now. Yeah, I can't think of the company. Uh, ne- Nexon. Nexon. Yes, Nexon. Nexon had a host of massive multiplayer online games uh, of all different types and varieties, but they were all 2D pixel art yeah. for the most part. Um, they had a really interesting one that was a uh, sort of a, an RTS, uh, like a sci-fi RTS. Uh, that that was really popular around that time, but then Warcraft came out and blew it all away because not only did they have a lot more money to put into the MMO to start than, than all these other companies did, um, but they also had this sort of defined art style and fan base behind them to to sort of kick it out. And this is and this is one of those things that quickly became a weird issue with World of Warcraft as it evolved. It started out being this new style of MMO that I think it took a little bit after EverQuest. It was it was mostly tied to EverQuest, um, but it was something that Blizzard had never done before, and they were still you know learning with how to with how to make the game, and they're still learning even today on how to properly improve it with each expansion. Um, but still learning, they're still. Ever since it came out, they've been the forefront of. Yeah. I mean, they they redefined the genre. Yeah, 
and they, so, made it and they huge. continue to Which be the definition of the genre. They redefined the genre of RTS with Warcraft 3, and then they redefined the genre of MMO with World of Warcraft. They're very, they're very redefining people. Yeah. They're, they're very, we try something new and suddenly it is amazing. Yeah. Or they try something new and it doesn't work. Yes, yeah. There's, that also happens. And that's, and, that's, and that's the thing about Blizzard is they've always been pushing into new territory. They're always trying to do something they've never done before, which is something that I've that you'll see with like even now with their new games that are coming out: Heroes of the Storm, Hearthstone, um, Overwatch. These are new territories they've never worked in before. Yeah. Um, but like uh, from World of Warcraft to Burning Crusade to Wrath of Lich King, they've they've been learning and trying to improve on that. And this is where one of the major issues of World of Warcraft emerged. It was how do you keep telling this universe, and how do you keep tying it with the gameplay? And this was where the camps got uh, divergent. Because people who were in World of Warcraft for the universe, people who had been there since Warcraft 1, 2, and 3, and wanted to play World of Warcraft to keep experiencing the world, were having a little bit of issue, but the new people who vastly outnumbered them who were there for the game and didn't care quite as much about the universe, were loving the gameplay up through Wrath of the Lich King. And the story was getting told, but there were some improvements to be made. Cataclysm came out, and they were saying, okay, we need to do more for the story. We need to tell the story. We need to try and tell the story better. But with that, the gameplay suffered. And so they've been trying to strike this balance of story and gameplay that they, they only could have done... By doing a, they only could have struck the perfect balance of that by doing a different style of MMO if they had taken after like Ultima Online. Yeah. Um, but it's too late. It was too late by Burning Crusade and Wrath of Lich King to completely retool the way the game works. So they've been building and trying to strike this perfect balance. Um, so through Cataclysm, they focused more on the story. They tried to get, you know, telling the story. And then, in Ra- and, and then they went to Mist of Pandaria where they tried to focus more on the interactions between the factions about the Alliance of Horde Warfare and build more on the gameplay there. And they've been moving forward and trying to get this perfect balance that they're still not quite there, but they finally figured out how to get people to pay attention to the story with Warlords of Draenor because they tell the story in the mission. And this is something they had that, that is relatively new uh, because previously they didn't have everything voice acted. Like they had only the important bits, like in raids and stuff, were voice acted in World of War- in World of Warcraft up to like Burning Crusade and Wrath of Lich King. But in Warlords of Draenor, they try to get as much voice acting in as they can because they have the capacity to do so now. Um, they try and tell the story in the mission because previously it was just when you take a quest, you get the dialogue. Of the start of the quest. You get a page of text. You get a page of text that's telling you what's going on, and then you go and do it. In World of the Draenor, they're telling the story better because they're giving you more storytelling through the quest as it goes. Yeah. But there's still this camp of people who feel like the gameplay is suffering. Who feel like the gameplay doesn't really mesh with the story or or anything. Which is something that they seem to be fixing in Legions. There's like there's a big conversation that I've had about diversity. In Not legions, legions, the new expansion for World of Warcraft. Okay, so I I, I, don't, I don't know anything about the new expansion yet. So, 
Um, the new expansion for World of Warcraft they've announced is Legions. It's focusing on the return of the bur- of the Burning Legion to which, to attack once more. Okay, which has been a one, it, it, one of the one of the speculated uh, possible yeah. ways they could go. Also um, speculated as the end. Con- is, end but but the they have confirmed they have six more expansions. I think I don't know if it's counting Legions or after Legion, but they have six more total expansions. Which is interesting because once you've beaten the Burning Legion, where do you go? That's a good question. We don't even know if they'll beat the Burning Legion here. Fair. It's a fair point. Um, but one of the things they're talking about is adding more diversity between the classes. Because one of the big complaints uh, since like Wrath of the Lich King Cataclysm was that the classes had stopped being diverse. They were all just DPS, healer, tank. They did their roles. They did them slightly differently, but they did their roles. Yeah. Uh, one of the things they're talking about in Legions is adding more diversity in that. Adding class-specific zones, class-specific storylines. More, more class-specific stuff and more different ways the classes yeah, are different. Outside of the mechanical differences, every class goes through the same story, gets the same reaction, gets the same... Ad, the same you know, sir, uh, you know, pronoun when referred to. Yeah. Uh, gets you know with with slight differences based on race, but that's it. Yeah. Um, and then in combat, there's three different classes for each role. Like you know, there's there's multiple classes that can perform healer, multiple classes that can perform tank, multiple classes that can perform DPS, and each class can do two or three of those. Um, which makes it very hard for each one to be unique. Because they all can do the same things, uh, so I would like to see how they fix that. Yeah, in, in legions, they're supposedly adding more class-specific stuff. Yeah, um, more unique zones for specific classes, more unique quest lines for specific classes, uh, along with the new hero class, the demon hunter. Oh, so that is going to be that is a confirmed. Yep, that, hero is, the, class? that is that is the hero class for the legions expansion. That's probably the one. That's probably the one that everyone has wanted the most. Since since they announced Death Knight, everyone's wanted Demon Hunter. Yeah. Because that was the big clash in Warcraft 3 was Arthas against Illidan. Yeah. Um right, so 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 they're you know, they they sort of work on iterating within the same universe and and, and sometimes within the same game. Yeah. Work on that iteration. So there's another line. Yeah, there's a, there's to another go down, line of uh, which is uh, if we we'll, if we we'll, if we will attempt to delve into the chaotic schism that is Lord British slash Richard Garriott's mind, which is to say <laughs> retcon everything. If I didn't like it, it didn't happen. If I did, if I don't like it, it never existed. So uh, units, let's take us take us down yes. Ultima. Take us down Ultima. I grew up on the Ultima series because I don't play modern games because I'm silly. Um. But that was a game that I grew up on playing, and it's it's really interesting because Lord British is an eccentric individual who holds complete power over the games now, and does now, whatever Lord British feels like let's, doing. Let's let's preempt this by explaining exactly who Lord British is. Okay, Richard Garriott is an individual who uh, moved to America from England, and he picked up his name Lord British because he went to a summer camp, and all the kids thought his accent was funny because they were all ten. And they started referring to him as Lord British. Well, rather than being made fun of, he thought this was hilarious and decided that he would forevermore be known as Lord British. Yeah. Richard Garriott is also a completely crazy auteur game developer. Crazy in a good way. He, is, he, he along with Hideo Kojima and Suda51, are kind of the, 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 the way, you know, when you say auteur, auteur, when you say auteur in relation to video games, 
you can immediately point to one of those three individuals and say that one. For for example, <laughs> recently Richard Gary Richard Gary doesn't want to go into space. He became one of the first civilians in space because he's that, that kind of money. He just flew up into space. He then got licensed to marry people so that he could perform a wedding in space for his friends for no other reason than to be the first person to perform a wedding ceremony in space. Also, uh, he created Ultima by himself. Yes, and the first <laughs> Ultima game, because he couldn't get anyone to publish it, was sold in Ziploc bags yep. like in this, stores. This man is eccentric and he is brilliant. And he is one of the most persistent people on the planet. Very prolific as well. Um, so in 1981, he released Ultima 1 in Ziploc bags, walking door-to-door to stores, being like, sell this. Please. Um, and it went over amazingly. And I would like to clarify for everybody, the first game was really interesting. Um, you picked from one of four basic races. Uh, you could be a, a human, which was well-rounded, an elf, which was good dexterity, a dwarf, which was good strength, and a bobbit. A bobbit. Not a hobbit, but a bobbit, which had good uh, spellcasting. A bobbit. A bobbit. A bobbit. And low dexterity. What did it look like? Uh, bobbits looked like a combination of halflings and gnomes. Hmm. So a hobbit. But bigger heads. Kind of? Because hobbits um, are halflings. They're... Hobbits are halflings, but they're, they're not necessarily bigger heads. Um, they're just more... Eccentric. Eccentric looking? Yeah. But not extremely. They, they, they're, they, they were later to be high wisdom, low dexterity. Okay. Um, but anyway, and then you pick from fighter, mage, etc. Okay. Um, the four basic classes. And the first game, you're thrown into a world. And um, it's worth noting, at this time, there was one other RPG going around, which was the Wizardry series. Um, which pioneered the dungeon delving, like seen in Bard's Tale, mm-hmm. uh, which picked up that picked up on it later. But sort of the <clears throat> crawling through box dungeons. Now, now first uh, person mode. Something that Lord British is well known for is his self insert characters. Yes, is there one in the first one? Yeah. Well, first of all, Lord British was one of the kings. However, um, Lord British was always an avid LARPer. Yeah. His LARP character is Shamino, and Shamino is one of the kings of one of the castles. Um, there's also YOLO. Which did not mean... No. You well, it's once spelled point. I-O-L-O. Yeah. Um, who was later retconned to be a character from Earth. More on that in Ultima 7, I believe, is when that was official, but it was theorized before that. Um, and then his wife was um, YOLO's wife. I believe, or Apprentice. No, how old? Gwendolyn. How old was Richard Garriott when he made the first Ultima game? Um, he would have been in his thirties. Okay. Thirty-year-old um, man wandering door to door, saying, "Sell my game." Same, sell my game. Yeah, okay. pretty much. Um, and this, this game, it was a huge okay. hit because it was. It, it was first of all, it was a top-down view RPG, um, in which you walked around in a world. It wasn't just dungeon crawl. It was an actual world. Where talking to people gave you hints um, to the quests, it was still kind of vague because talking to people was literally they give you a sentence. You Richard, could, Richard Garrett also turned also also coined the term avatar, didn't he? Yes, um, but this is that's later on. Um, but anyway, for the first game, 
It's a little bit discoherent because what you do is you go through dungeons until you find laser guns, build a spaceship, go into space, find a time machine, and you defeat the immortal wizard by using the time machine to go back in time before who is immortal and killing him in the past. <laughs> Lord British. <laughs> that, that, you, this is Lord British. The second game was very much like the first. Um, the first one was 1981. The second game, um, he got published by Sierra, actually. Um, and it's part of Sierra the reason... Adventure Game! It's part of the reason I'm not <laughs> even trying to connect these, but it's part of the reason that Heroes Quest was created in 1989. More on that with Ultima V. <laughs> more on that with this one. More on that later. <laughs> but, um, 1982, it, it was basically the same concept, except you were defeating the evil wizard's wife, who was upset with you for killing her husband, even though you killed him in the past. Before they were married. Don't even question it, bro. <laughs> Richard Garriott does it Richard Garriott once. Richard Garriott does not know what the word continuity means. <laughs> and so the second game plays... It's a big very, word. The second game have a dictionary. plays very much like the first game. The third game, released in 1983, I would like to mention back to back to back. Um, he wasn't... Uh, he didn't want to bow to Sierra's wishes, and so he split off, and that's when he invented his own publishing company to publish his games as Lord British. Lord British Entertainment. Because I'm Lord British. I do what I want. I'm freaking Lord British. What do and you by want? this point, now, how well did the first two games The sell? first two games sold as well as, if not better than, Wizardry, to the point where they so were how, the how, only two how, RPGs of the time. They how sold long freaking did, gangbusters. How long did it take for him to get his, his uh, Ultimate One games out of the Ziploc bags into a box? Um, I don't know if that ever happened, because he released Ultima 2 the next year. Yeah. And he released Ultima 3 the year after that. Yeah. So he's a single-person developer, released three games in three years. So if you want to feel like you don't do anything, <laughs> listen to this podcast now. <laughs> um, so in 1983, he released Ultima 3, which was the first of the really seminal games. Um, and what it did was, it, it had the same four races... Um, but it, it had a much more in-depth character creation, and it had parties. Um, it was a party of four people, which was an idea he basically took from wizardry, but then made it into it, his own styling. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to this, you were one person, you walked around the map, and you fought people on the map. In this game, when you got into a fight, you went to a fight screen, where your party was up against their party, and each, they were each represented by a single icon, but once you got into a fight... That one orc might be a troop of seven orcs, mm-hmm. um, and you and it, you could have multiple classes in your party. So you ha- and he introduced a new race. So you had humans, dwarves, elves, bobbits, and fuzzies. Dare I ask? Fuzzies were four foot tall little half Ewok, half Wookie, precursor to furries. Um. <laughs> And they were interesting. All, all races gained and lost a stat. Humans were even. Dwarves, uh, they had four stats. Strength, dexterity, intelligence, wisdom. They did pretty much what you expect they do. Yeah, yeah. The dwarves gained strength and lost intelligence. Elves gained dexterity and lost wisdom. Uh, Bobbits gained wisdom, lost dexterity. dexterity. And then you needed a race that gained intelligence. So fuzzies gained intelligence, but they also gained dexterity, and they double lost strength. Double lost strength and didn't lose strength and wisdom? No, double lost strength. So instead, of, so the way it worked is, you know, you had a max of 75, and you could either have a max of 90, 99 or 50. Fuzzy's only had a max of 25 on strength. 
but they could get 99 dex and intelligence. They are Ewoks. Um, and then, well, they're only four feet tall and they're super skinny, unlike the Bobbits. Mm. Um, and then what happened was um, you had the four classes, fighter, mage, cleric, thief, and you also had all the multi-class combinations. For example, you have your barbarian. A barbarian had could use fighter weapons, but only wear thief armor, but he could do thieving skills. Um, uh, the illusionist was like a cleric thief. The alchemist was a wither thief, etc., etc. There was one for every combination, and there was the ranger. Um, but you started in Lord British Castle, and you had to defeat the son of the wife and husband combo. Generational enemies. Known as Exodus. So if you killed the husband before the wife, before he was married to the wife, don't Richard Garriott said no. Had a kid. Richard Garriott says no. You, the kid shouldn't exist. The kid is also half demon, half computer. Is the wizard a computer? No. Is the mother a demon? No. So where does the other come from? Richard Garriott's mind. It's a very confusing place. Remember what I said at the beginning. <laughs> anyway. Um. And also, at this point, he unified his world. He decided that... Because in the first two games, there was, there was a lot of castles, and you went to castle to castle to different games. He decided that the entire world should be ruled by one castle controlled by Lord British. Of course. Because Lord British. And you can't kill Lord British. You can't... Actually, okay. They did find a way. Hold kill on. Let me clarify this. You can fight anyone, and you can kill anyone. Um, there's different difficulties for different enemies, except for Lord British. If you cast a kill spell on him, it won't work. There is a workaround. If you get a ship into the castle, you get Lord British to follow you by triggering him as hostile to the water. You can kill him with the cannon because he's not in the combat screen yet. He's only invincible in combat screens. And the cannon kills things outside of combat. The cannon kills things outside of combat. Um, however, I'm lost. What game are we on? Ultima Three. Okay. But everyone you kill when you walk back into the town, they respawn. And finding a way to kill Lord British has been one of the running jokes in all of the Ultima games. Yes, um, because Lord British is almost always immortal. Anyway, so you you defeat Exodus, um, and did he drop anything if you killed him? Lord British, no, because <laughs> they don't drop things if you kill them out of combat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that game, and it, it was it was a much better game. How do you get a ship into the castle? Don't question it, bro. Very carefully. Don't question it. The solu- I thought the solutions to killing Lord British are as insane as Lord British himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to beat Lord British, um, you must think like Lord British. <laughs> Ultima Four was released uh, a few years later. So when he stopped his back to back to back. Yeah, he stopped his back to back to back. And Ultima Four was. Interesting, because it introduced Lord British watched the way that people played RPGs, and one thing he hated was he hated all the NPC killing, all of the stealing. In in the third game, one of the things you could do there was a town called You. It was a town of peaceful druids, and there were no guards in it. And a great way to grind was to go in murder all the druids because they gave a disproportionate amount of XP and gold for how how easy they were. And leave, they'd all respawn, go back in, and murder them all again, repeatedly. Total slaughter, total slaughter, 
I won't leave a single man alive. Okay, we should stop. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Lord, Lord British didn't like this because obvious reasons, and so he created the fourth game. The fourth game is where the series started to become consistent. Number one, he created a world map that he decided to stop changing every year. Um, I don't like the world map. Let's move this continent over here and reshape this. <laughs> Let's just... I didn't like this continent. Light it on fire. Put a new one in its place. <coughs> but, um, Ultima Four <coughs> introduced the Avatar. The whole point of the game was not to defeat enemies, but was to become the icon of virtue. Um, which became a running theme throughout his games, was becoming the icon of virtue. And um, the, the eight virtues, which were derived from the three principles, the three principles being truth, courage, and love. Each principle had its own virtue, honesty, valor, and compassion. If you combine the principles, you got sacrifice, honor. Did I say honor or honesty earlier? You should so you had yeah. nine total... Not eight. Because um, the, the three combinations would be honor, justice, and sacrifice. And then there was spirituality, which was the combination of all three principles, and humility, which was... Combination uh, of all three virtues. Uh, no, devoid of all three principles. Okay. Um, and those were the eight virtues. And they each had a corresponding class. I'd like to clarify that class balance was not a thing. Um, which, because was, which was the best class? Wizards. Because the most powerful weapon in the game was the magic wand. Okay. And wizard could wield it. And the most powerful armor in the game was mystic armor, which anybody could could have. And then wizards got full spellcasting. Shepherds were the worst class in the game because they had no spellcasting. They had wizard weapons and wizard armor. But no magic wand. So, hard mode. Yes. Also, um, so what we're gonna have to when, do is whenever, we're gonna have to stream an Iron, Mo- uh, uh, Iron, Iron, Man, Iron Man Shepherd run of Ultima Four. Uh, Iron Man Shepherd run Ultima um, Four on stream. And, and the way the game worked was instead That'd of your, your character creation was not choose your character; it was answer the following moral dilemmas to cho- see which virtue you embody. Personality quiz. Yes. And was kill everybody and take their stuff and answer on every question? No. <laughs> it, it was always basically be t- pick the two ver- pick one of two virtues for this thing. For example, it would be um, uh, a knight comes upon your way and demands food of you. Do you A, uh, valorously stand up to the knight or B, sacrifice your pride and um, food to give him what So the the questions had the virtue that he was looking for in each answer. Yeah, basically. You knew which virtue you were picking from. And none of them had wrath. Uh, and, and in this game, number one, there was a dialogue system. When you spoke to people, you could you had you typed in questions, and you would um, their responses would have keywords that you could then ask to further elaborate. Or they tell you, oh, well, go speak to um, Dupre intrinsic about uh, Dupre intrinsic about um, nightshade, and he'll tell you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk to me about Nightshade. Also, instead of... Ask me about Nightshade. Also, instead of creating a party, you uh, picked up party members from the world. There was one party member for each virtue. You could not pick up the party member of the virtue you were. So if you're a tinker, you cannot pick up Julia, the tinker. Okay. Um, this was also where the Avatar characters were. Um, Richard Garriott's character was Shimino, and he was the ranger that joined you. 
because um, he left his title as king to let Lord British rule to become a ranger and uh, can, uh, contemplate the universe and yeah. whatever. So both Shimino and Lord British are in this game. Yes. And this, and this Shimino is in almost every game. The one character in every game aside from Lord British is Yolo, who is the Yolo. part that joins you. You only live once. Apparently not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Uh, and you game, only live seven times. This, this this was this was the game that, that Richard Garrett coined the term Avatar yes. when, for the embodiment of the player within the game. And you became the Avatar of virtue in this game. It was Ultima Four Quest for the Avatar. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this, he, he he coined he coined the term Avatar in relation to player into, character into the embodiment of the player character because Avatar the, the word had already been around. Yeah, it, the, yeah, yeah. He took it from the actual religious term. And used it, used it in context with both the religious term and the player character. Yes. Yep. Um, Man does not do anything in halves. <laughs> and it was at this point that it was retconned that, first of all, you're from Earth. Okay. And you are teleported to Britannia. Um, whenever... Hey, Britannia. <laughs> <laughs> Lord British of Britannia, yeah. Um, and what it is is the Moon Gates call... You'll get called to the moon gate in your backyard and you'll go into the other world. And at this point, it was retconned that, oh yeah, you're the guy from the first three games. But the third game had a party system. You were one of them. Shut up. You were one of them. But but wait, all the oh, and all the races vanished. So if you were a bobbit, nope, you were actually a human the whole time. You were a human you were... the whole time. <laughs> no fuzzies. You were just a very hairy human. No more fuzzies. No more furries. So just straight... Retcon Human. everything, and let's ignore the fact that there was a time machine and laser guns in the first two games. Okay. That that never happened. That never happened. Um, what? What first game? What are you talking about? This is Ultima 1. <laughs> now, another interesting thing that happened was, um, in every subsequent game, of course, you played the Avatar. Yeah. Um, Apparently, time travels in differently on these two planets. So whenever you... At the end of each game, you go back to your home planet of Earth. <clears throat> and then on the planet of Britannia, time passes much faster. So you'll come back Narnia. like 300 years later. Oh, yeah. It's Narnia. Um, well, I don't know which one came first. I don't know, I don't know when that... Narnia. Was, Narnia was written in like the late... I, 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 didn't know, I, I don't know the time. I didn't, I didn't know when... when C.S. Lewis was friends with Tolkien. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, anyway... So, um, Ultima Five happens tens of hundreds of years later. Lord British is immortal, and the characters that Richard Garriott like are also immortal. So, reasons, yeah. <laughs> is Lord it, British an elf? No. <laughs> just a, he's Lord British. He's just Lord British. He's the immortal king of forever. Who, he exists outside of time. Um, and at this point, you in Ultima Five, you come back because Lord British has been whisked away to the abyss. And you're called back by Yolo um, to save Shimino, who's been uh, shot by one of the ring rays. I mean, Dark Lords. With a Morgul blade. I mean, a poison sword. Do you have a ring that makes you invisible? No, you have an Ankh. You have an Ankh that makes you invisible? No, you have an Ankh that you point it at these ghost creatures and they shy away from you. Okay. Anyway. Okay. The fifth game was ridiculously hard because they introduced their spell system as instead of type in in, an Ultima four, they developed reagents. And what you do is you'd mix spells before combat and and just on the world's like, okay, I'm going to mix my black pearl and I'm going to have a fireball that I throw later. My black pearl and 
No. Not quite. Reagent. It's, it's really a, a style that's pretty uniquely his. Um, but you... It's like, I'm going to, out of combat, mix what spell? Fireball, which reagents. Sulfuric Ash and Black Pearl. And as you go through the game, you learn combinations to make new spells. It's, okay, it's, so it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the concept of Vancian Magic where a spell is a prepackaged deal, but yeah. you make them with the reagents that yeah, you have. Yeah, it's kind of like right potion on. making. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a variant on, on alchemy and yeah. D&D style magic. Which you is have to, you magic. Have to, yeah, you prepare magic. Yeah. Um, well, and Ultima 5, <coughs> instead of preparing Fireball, you prepare Anox Vor. Because he created, you created a language of magic. Because I like cool languages. And what they... It's like a Nox spell system. Yeah. The, the way it worked is you had to know... You had to learn all of, the, all of what the spells were. For example, Fireball would be a series of three different words and you had to learn them and it got really convoluted because you basically had to learn this new language of magic and it was a pain in the tuchus. <clears throat> but um it was also just nightmarishly hard of a game. Okay. And then Ultima Six. Ultima Six um you took more <laughs> We've spent more time on Ultima 4 than we did on the entire Final Fantasy. Ultima 4, <laughs> really, once you it know is, Ultima 4, it established. Ultima 6 Final Fantasy is. basically took the, it, it took the same system, it, it narrowed it down, yeah. you picked up all the same companions. Um, Ultima 7 was when they established that, oh, the reason that you've lived thousands of years and the reason that YOLO has lived, because it happens 350 years after Ultima 6... The reason that YOLO's still an old man and still alive is because, oh yeah, he's from Earth too, and everybody from Earth lives forever. Don't question it. What? What? No! Apparently, probably wrong! Apparently, the way it works is if you're. If, if, um, you, Wait! You don't die when you die. You go to Britannia. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the way it works is you, you age based on the world you're from, not where the world you are. So, despite the fact that YOLO's been in. So because time moves so much faster in Britannia, while he's living in Britannia, he's basically, like, basically almost immortal. immortal. Yeah, he's so like, oh yeah, I've been alive for a thousand years, but it's only been, like, two years in Earth time, so I'm fine. So what we're really saying is that the calendar in Britannia is, like, a year is five minutes. And somehow Lord British writes you letters. I don't know how they get to you. Moongate. Sure. YOLO. <laughs> YOLO. YOLO. YOLO um, sent you the letters. Shimino and Dupre. Sh- Shimino, Dupre, and Yolo are like three of the. I really want to hear Shimino talk about amino acids. And they just kind of live forever because Boy British acids. likes them. He, the he, he gave his his weak argument for oh yeah Yolo lived forever because he's from Earth. Wait, does Shimino cast spells? Yes. Does he cast acid based spells? He can. He's a he ranger. So, so, so beware of Shimino's acid. Continuing on. Pun <laughs> <laughs> counter uh, Around about uh, the time of Ultima 7, they, they wanted to split up. They wanted to try a dungeon delver. By the way, Ultima 6 only came out in like 1990. Yeah. So in the 80s was when their most prolific games were. At this point, they, they released the games called the Stygian Abyss, which were. Stygian? Stygian. Lord British pronounces words the way he wants to pronounce words. Don't question that. <laughs> so was it spelled Stygian or did he respell it to the Stygian? S-T-Y-G-I-A-N. Stygian. Stygian, yeah. Stygian Abyss. Don't question how Lord British pronounces his words. <laughs> Don't question Lord British. In which um, you, the Avatar, get summoned into a dungeon crawl. 
Okay. Um, it was not the most successful thing ever, but it was You were fun. summoned into wizard. Into I wizardry. summoned you into wizardry. <laughs> that was a fun game series. I liked it. I wouldn't do my own version of it. Yeah. Okay. How about it? Um, and then... Uh, eight. Eight was not a good game. Because basically, in eight, you get summoned and everyone's dead. It's the only game that YOLO is not in. What should we know? None of the the only character in that game is you. What about Lord British? I don't believe he's in that game. Lord British is dead. I don't know. Lord British has died. No, they've been banished. He was was in his emo period. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Ultimate Nine came out. Ultimate Seven was probably the most popular. Ultimate Nine came out. It wasn't as successful. And then a while after that, Ultima Online, because Richard Garriott was like, you know what I want to do? I want to create a game that you can play on the internet with your friends. I'm going to call it an MMORPG. Lord British made the term MMORPG. Yes, he did. Massively multiplayer online role-playing So without Lord British, we wouldn't have all of the massively multiplayer tie-in games that we have now. Yeah. We need to go back in time and kill Lord British. (laughs) You can't kill Lord British. He's immortal. We have a cannon. Yes, we take a ship into his castle and kill him with a cannon. No, it's canon, though. You can take a time machine to before he was immortal... Aha, yes, we take you a can kill him. before he was a war. He retconned no. that, though. No, he retconned no. it. It never happened. No, he, it happened, but he retconned it that the Avatar did it. Mm. No, because his wife was still his wife and his kid was still alive. Yes, so you but you still did it. <laughs> just after his kid was born. Killing him in the past didn't affect what he did in the future. <laughs> it just stopped him from the point. There's still butterfly effect. It's all multiverse theory. <laughs> What's anyway. going on? What is going on? What is going on? All these squares make a circle. The answer is Richard Garriott. You're welcome. <laughs> Richard Garriott is going right. on. Uh, I think we spent enough time on, on, on Richard Garriott. Okay, so Ultima Online. Was Ultima Online the last of the Ultima games? Yeah. Because then went on to make Tabula Raz and a bunch of other non-Ultima games. And I think... Uh, well, at, at that point... Was it, like, yes. Or is... Or of the or is, is the most recent one that he's or, trying to work on. Or is, working or, on or is Tabula Raz a secretly ultimate game? And he, he did Tabula Raz. I have not played Tabula Raz. I do not have any experience with I it. I did. It wasn't good. I know he... I think I think he's working on a new game that I think he's calling um, Shroud of the Avatar. I, I think one of the biggest problems with Lord British was he did not go into modern era as well and new technologies. Like, after Ultima Online... Were there any of the Ultima games 3D? Ultima no. Online isn't either. No, no they're all sprite-based. Yeah, because I know Tabula Raza was probably his first attempt at a 3D game. Um, I suppose Stygian Abyss is... It's Wolfenstein-esque. Still 2D, though. Yeah, it's 2D, but it's in a... Yeah. Oh, it's the, it's the 2D, 3D weird. 2D and 3D. 2.5D. Yeah. yeah, 2D and 3D plane. Yeah. So, yep, that is that is the madness that is uh, Lord British's mind. Right, so, we, we, we've gone through a lot of these long issues, and one of the things I really want to talk about is how games change and how 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 much of that change is for good and how much of that change is for bad and how much of that change is for Crazy. British what are you on exactly so let's 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 analyze the changes in the three series that so we just... one of the one of the common changes that we've seen have been storyline changes mm-hmm. where uh, aspects of the story change depending on you know depending on a variety of things final fantasy you know when there's when there's Form of storytelling changed way back in Final Fantasy three or four. Um, you know they started they started putting like sort of an overarching theme on each of their stories and building their stories out of that. The best example that I have of this is Final Fantasy seven. Uh, Final Fantasy seven is a game about guilt. Um, 
it's all about every the, the almost everybody's motivations are based in their guilt of something. All of their almost all of their character development is based in their guilt of something and based on how we deal with our guilt and then how we overcome our guilt. Um, just to, to go off at the very beginning, um, Cloud. Uh, spoilers for Final Fantasy VII for those of you that have never seen it or beaten it. Cloud, to start back at the very beginning of the story, again, this is spoilers for Final Fantasy VII, Cloud starts off as a child wanting to join Soldier. And in doing, in, 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 in the process of growing up, he makes a promise to his love interest, Tifa, that when he becomes a hero, if she's ever in trouble, he will come to her rescue. Because she wants to be rescued by a knight in shining armor. That's her, that's her dream. She's very explicit about it. Interestingly, she commands him to do this. She's like, you will become a knight in shining armor and rescue me. And he's like, sure, sure, whatever. Confused feminism? Yeah. Um, she knows what she wants and she's going to do whatever it takes to get it. Um, I want to be a damsel in this dress. <laughs> and she, yeah, she does. Um, she becomes a martial so, arts master. Yeah, she becomes a martial arts master. So Cloud goes on and he, and he joins Shin, the Shinra Electric, Shinra Electric Power Corporation and, and becomes uh, one of their infantrymen, but he's never good enough to make it into soldier. He doesn't make the cut. First aspect of his guilt. He can never fulfill the promise he made to Tifa because he doesn't see himself as a hero. He sees himself as a failure. Um, and that's part of why he never contacts Tifa again in that time period. He sees himself as guilty. Meanwhile, he becomes very good friends with Zach Fair, who has everything that he doesn't have. Zach has nothing tying him down. He's happy-go-lucky, free, full of energy, and he's a soldier. First class, in fact. In by fact, the time he meets by the time he meets Cloud, he's soldier first class, one of only four. Um, and he's everything that Cloud wanted to be. And he's his friend. Um... So Cloud kind of feels a little jealous of Zack and feels guilty for feeling jealous of Zack. Um, but they're, they're very good friends and they, they, they go on their, their, their things. And eventually everything that happens in, in Nibelheim happens, which is Sephiroth goes crazy and accuses human race of being guilty of, of uh, stealing his inheritance, basically, i.e. the planet. Um, Stealing the planet from Genova. And burns Nibelheim to the ground. In doing so, he severely injures Zack. Severely injures Tifa. And almost kills Cloud. Tifa gets injured because Cloud couldn't... So at this point, Cloud is disguising himself as a Shinra soldier. As a Shinra infantryman. Um, and I guess he feels guilty he because never, he couldn't. He never, tells, he never reveals that it's him to Tifa. So Tifa doesn't know he's there. Tifa gets injured by Sephiroth. And the reason Tifa got injured by Sephiroth is because he didn't stop her from going into the Mako reactor. So he so is he feels directly again. responsible for her getting injured. So, so this is why we get Cloud, the quote-unquote angsty teenager. This is Yeah. So he goes in and he confronts Sephiroth, who doesn't know who he is, because at this point Cloud's a nobody. Cloud is literally nothing to Sephiroth. Sephiroth stabs him through the gut, and Cloud, in his rage, picks Sephiroth and his sword up, with the sword still in him, by the way, flings him over the side of the reactor and into the live stream below. I mean, I guess it helps a bit that while he's been in this reactor, he's been getting bathed in Mako for about, 
you know, not not, not too terribly long. Two hours, not, four hours. Not too terribly long. He hasn't been there long, but and and he has, but the, so he he somehow survives that, and and Hojo takes him and Zach into a secret laboratory and experiments on them, and this is where he injects. Uh, he not only bathes him in Mako, which which causes his already pretty fragile mental state to sort of crack. He injects him with Genova cells in an attempt to make him a Sephiroth clone. Well, Zack, you know, gets out, breaks out, uh, takes Cloud and runs away. They're running to Minger. And they're being chased by the, Sh- the Shinra soldiers the whole way. They get to a crest overlooking Minger. And Cloud is in a sort of catatonic state. He's not reacting to anything. He's not really doing anything. He's just semi-comatose. He's awake and breathing, but that's about it. Um, so Zack hides him away and proceeds to take on the entire Shinra army by himself and wins. Because he's Zack Fair. (laughs) He takes on hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and machines and tanks and a helicopter by himself and wins. Question, what's he wielding? The Buster Sword. A Uh, giant slab of metal. I will take this helicopter with my sword. Yes. The iconic Buster Sword was Zack's weapon. The Buster Sword, by the way, for those who are unaware, is a great sword that is as long as its wielder is tall. Well, and as wide as its wielder is wide. <laughs> the the blade is as long as its wielder is tall. The hilt's a little bit taller. And the and, and it's it's also and it's, it's a good three feet wide. It's a comedically wide sword with a comedically tiny hilt. At this point, in, in Crisis Core, which is where all this happens, um, it's 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 been slightly reduced in size, so it's not quite as comedic, but it's still huge. Um, it, it is so still, he, it's he, still basically a slab of metal with a sharpened point. Yes. Um, so he he, he beats all these, except for four Shinra infantrymen, one of whom kills him finally. So. Basically, he, he, he does the he does the Yukimura Sanada thing of fighting until he can fight no more, and at that point he's dead. He never surrenders. He never does anything. So they kill him. They don't see clouds. So they, they, the the four guys that are left leave back to Minker. Like, dude, if this one guy did all that, I I want to meet this cloud man. And Cloud crawls out from his hiding space to Zack, who is bleeding. lying on the ground bleeding out, and Zack entrusts his sword, and his hopes and his dreams to Cloud. Who now feels guilty because his best friend is dead because of him. (laughs) So, all of this... Cloud's even more fragile mental state basically shatters. shatters. Yes, Cloud shatters. And as best as he can between the Mako Mako, uh, energy poisoning... And the Genova cells that are calling him to go to Sephiroth um, sort of rebuilds his brain, rebuilds his mind and his psyche. And he imprints everything he knows about Zack, all the things he's seen Zack do, and his ideal image of what Soldier First Class is supposed to be into himself. And he's, he basically picks up his own pieces and puts them back in the wrong order. Um, overriding all of his memories with Zack with himself and sort of struggles and finds his way into sort of dropped into Sector 7 in the Minker slums which is where the beginning of Final Fantasy 7 starts and fun, funny enough Mako Infusion kind of makes him soldier class yeah that, well uh, all soldiers are infused with Mako that's how they become superhumanly strong and durable um, 
And so he has now basically gone through the soldier initiation process. So with, he, a li- with a little bit of extra added from the genome. He, he, might, he might never have been officially a soldier, but he's basically a soldier. He's basically a soldier now. Um, so, so the entire game is basically him, him guilting so much and then rebuilding his brain from the ground so up. So the, the story, not the entire game, but the story, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, so he's built, his, he's, he's built himself back from the ground up, replacing Zack in his mind and therefore covering up all of his internal guilt. Okay. Um, some things still happen. Some things he still remembers are. He still remembers the events of the Moscow Reactor. He still remembers Sephiroth. And he remembers Tifa. He remembers Tifa, yes. Okay, that, that's, a, that's an important he one. Remembers Tifa, yeah, he, he still remembers Tifa, and you see he has vague memories of their childhood, although it's hard for him to remember. Um, it's hard for him to remember a lot, but he remembers several important points. Yeah. You should probably be facing the it's, it's still hearing me. Okay. Um, it's hard for him to remember a lot, but he... Goes through the game, and, and the Genova cells in him are calling him to to go to the reunion, the Genova reunion, which is he he, he needs to find Sephiroth. He's driven to find Sephiroth by the Genova cells in him, but which is to say, the Genova reunion is a phenomenon that occurs with Genova, which is when Genova is split apart, all of her cells want to reunite. Yes, all of her cells want to get back together and make a new Genova. Uh, and so, since he has them in him, he's driven to do that. Um, so that's, that, that's his motivation for the game, but as he goes along, he's also, you know, sort of, sort of motivated by his guilt. Um, and a lot of the other characters are as well. If we go through it, uh, Barrett is motivated by his guilt of his accidentally getting his entire town destroyed, along with everyone he ever loved, and the mother and father of his adopted daughter. Tifa is driven by her guilt of knowing that something is wrong with Cloud and feeling like it's her responsibility because of that sort of gears that she put on him as a child. Um, and like when he tells them the story of what happened in Nibelheim and she knows for a fact he's lying, but she doesn't say anything because she doesn't want him to hurt anymore. Um, so she sort of buries that knowledge until it becomes pertinent later on. She's also not quite sure how she would even bring that up. Like, oh yeah, Cloud, by the way, your memories, they're wrong. Everything you're saying is a complete lie. Um, And so she wants to help him and figure out what's going on with him. Uh, Sid, you know, Sid, the character later, is driven by guilt, his guilt of the failed rocket launch. He he basically destroyed his own dreams and the dreams of his men by not launching the rocket because Shiro was still working on the oxygen tanks. Um, And that drove him to be a drinker, a smoker, and an abusive person. Um, To be fair, if he had taken off, he would have exploded. Yeah, he would have exploded and Shiro would have died. But he didn't know that. He didn't believe that either. He believes he stopped it because Shiro was being stupid. Um, You know, Vincent Vincent is driven by his guilt of not being able to save Lucrezia Crescent, who was the mother of Sephiroth. Um, uh, Yuffie's driven by her, feelings of, by her feelings of guilt because her father has turned Wutai, their once proud nation, into a tourist attraction. And think, if only there was something I could do to fix this, we could become a powerful nation again. Uh, Red 13 is driven by guilt of his father's failure to be a father figure, as far as he knows. <laughs> all of these characters you know uh, Kate Sith is driven by his guilt of betraying his friends from the beginning from the first time they met him 
all of these characters are driven I, by guilt. Kachi has been lying to you since he met yeah, you. Yeah, Kachi's been lying to you since he met you. Because, by the way, the I'm only, Reeves Westy. The only person who is not driven by their own guilt or the guilt of others is Aerith who is the last known member of the ancient race of proto-humans known as the Cetra. She's the only person not driven by guilt. And Sephiroth kills her, thus adding her to the list of people Cloud has failed. <laughs> so what we're saying is guilt. Like, like Which, which is why you found some as Final Fantasy VII gets the flack as being angsty teen the game. But it's because it's built on the concept of guilt and how they resolve it. By the end of the game, every character has resolved their guilt and has come to terms with it, has accepted it, and has moved on and become stronger from it. Because in resolving their guilt, not only do they, you know, they move on character-wise, they also unlock their limit breaks. Through resolving their guilt, like for instance, Red 13, when he comes to terms with the fact that his father was actually a proud warrior, who did his best to defend their home and in doing so was turned into a living statue for the entirety of his life. He unlocks Cosmo Memory, which is his ultimate attack. Barrett, when he saves the remaining members of Coral from a train wreck and, you know, prevents a repeat of the incident that happened so many years ago that left them all homeless and dead, he unlocks Catastrophe. You know, as his characters go along, they unlock these abilities by coming to terms with their guilt. And in coming to terms with their guilt, they become stronger. And then with the aid of their friends, who have also overcome their own guilt, come together and defeat the all-powerful Sephiroth, who has become a god at this point. So the overarching theme is guilt, how you deal with it, and then in dealing with it, you become stronger. And all of the games, if you look at them and break them down, have a similar sort of emotional theme that is very powerful. There's a reason Final Fantasy VII was and continues to be so popular. And it's because even if you don't realize it, something in there is something you relate to. Everybody can relate to the guilt of letting somebody down or the guilt of loss. You know, the guilt of there's only something I could do to prevent my loss. Which is why the Final Fantasy series is... Every so game, popular. despite being separate, is relatable. Yes. Like, eight, 8 deals with loss, 9 deals with identity, 10 deals with purpose. Uh, like, the Final Fantasy X, the whole, the whole bit is purpose. Like, there's a running theme of, this is my story, mm-hmm. you know? And my story has a purpose. And every character has something that they need to do to prove what their purpose is. Um, or to come to terms with what it is. And so that's something that sort of has, has changed and evolved over time, but that through line keeps all the games relatable and keeps them all distinctly Final Fantasy. That's what makes Final Fantasy fans so hardcore in their fandom. Um, moving over to Warcraft. <laughs> Sorry to have taken up a bit of time there. Uh, moving over to Warcraft. Uh, the through line there is, you know, well, the like since Warcraft three when they started their story shift of how they were going to tell their stories, the line has always been war changes people. Yeah, the things that you do in war, the things that you sacrifice in war will change you. And I can go down the line in characters. Let's start with Arthas. Yeah, who is by far one of the most well known Warcraft characters. You know, war changes him from being this 
paladin and defender of all that is good and just to being the literal embodiment of the devil. Death, <laughs> of death. Because Arthas starts out as Prince Arthas Menethil, son of Terranus Menethil. He is the prince of the kingdom of Lordaeron. He's been raised since his childhood by both the king and the king's best friend, Uther, the Lightbringer. Uther is the very first paladin of the Alliance. He was the first man to be given the right and the training of a paladin. And he <coughs> is the one who was assigned to train Arthas in the ways of the paladin. Arthas is, head fat, is headstrong and steadfast and a little bit arrogant throughout his, throughout his youth. He, goes, he grows, but he's a friend to Uther. He sees Uther as a very close friend. And he respects Uther. So he does, as Uther, is t- as Uther tells him, as a superior paladin, but he also has to think of what to do as a prince, as the rule, as future ruler of his kingdom. So he goes through the human campaign of Warcraft 3, begins with him battling against the age-old enemy of the humans, the orcs. The orcs, or the remnants of the old horde, battling the humans of Lordaeron. He leads the humans against these orcs who have, um, who have taken some, who have taken a small town hostage and are sacrificing them just to make packs with demons. He <coughs> defeats them and has overcome his people's age-old enemy. That is no longer his. That is no longer his opponent. He defeated the orcs. After he's defeated the orcs. There, there has been for some time news of a plague in Lordaeron that has been driving the, the people sick, keep, like making them ill. As he arrives in, in Stronbrad, uh, the city of Stronbrad, he discovers that the ground around this granary that has been distributing this grain from the city of Anderhall is dying. And he and the, and the mage with him, Jaina Proudmoore, come to the conclusion that the grain might be what is carrying the plague. And they come to the realization of this shortly before being attacked by the undead. The undead are a thing that have not existed since the First War. The orcs were the last people who raised the dead since the First and Second War. But these are undead without anyone leading them. These are just undead marching on Stronbrad. So Arthas and his men battle them back, and they encounter a necromancer by the name of Kel'Thuzad. Kel'Thuzad tells them to chase him to Anderhal. And Arthas does so. He's a paladin. He must fight to defend his people. He must save them from the undead in this plague. And so he chases down Kel'Thuzad into the city of Anderhal, which is where the grain is being distributed. From there... He chases down Kel'Thuzad and kills him, but Kel'Thuzad seems to have known this was coming. He says, "My death will mean little in the end, and now you and now you must for the scourging of this land begins." The scourge is the name of the great organization of the undead. It is designed to scourge life. 
And so from there, he moves on to the defense, to the defense of another town. They're preparing for war against the undead. The undead are coming in mass. He's left alone by he's left alone by Jaina, who goes to retrieve Uther to bring reinforcements. And so Arthas is stuck defending this town with his life, with everything he has. And it looks bleak. The undead are overwhelming his forces. The plague doesn't just kill his people, it turns them into the undead. Every one of his men that falls rises against him. And as he is down to basically just him and the bare few humans left alive, Uther's men come riding in. And this is the beginning of his change. Because here... Uther is so late that barely anyone is left alive. This builds a bit of resentment. I'm sorry, Uther, I didn't have all of the paladin leaders riding at my back to protect this place. And Uther reprimands him for, 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 by, for lashing back. And this builds a bit of resentment in Uther, or towards Uther. And it moves, and it moves forward, and then we get to Strathel which is the turning point of Arthas's character. Stratholm is a city that has been completely struck by the plague. Everyone is infected. And as far as Arthas knows, there is no cure. Everyone infected will become undead. Arthas makes the decision he feels he has to make. He says, purge this city. Kill everyone and everything in it and burn it to the ground. And then nothing will raise his undead. Exactly. Uther cannot take that decision. As a paladin, he cannot abide by it. Of course not. He cannot say, we will not, we will not slaughter all the innocents. So Arthas makes the decision between being a paladin and being a king. He makes the decision as a king to kill the city. He says, any of you who will not follow me are hereby disbanded. The paladins of the Silver Hand are hereby stripped of their duties and relieved of, and relieved of their command. Any who have the guts to save my people will follow me. And so he, he purges the city of Stratham. He kills everyone and everything, burns it to the ground before the dreadlord Malganus, who has revealed himself as his opponent, can take these, un can take these undead for his army. Yeah. And it is revealed that almost everybody in the city was infected. Everyone that he encounters is retching, dying, and turning into a zombie. Almost everyone. There are a few that aren't, but he kills them anyways. Because they're probably still infected. Yeah. <clears throat> and so Malganus challenges him. He challenges Arthas. He says, you don't have what it takes to save your people. If you do... You'll follow me to Northrend. You'll hunt me down. And Arthas says, yes. Hell yes, I will chase you to the ends of the earth if, I, if that's what it takes to kill you. And this is the turning point. He's changed from being a paladin and having the rules of a paladin to being, this is about my people. Yeah. I must save my people no matter the cost. And so he chases them to Northrend where he meets an old friend, Murden Bronzebeard, who is 
he's a dwarf. He's a, he's one of the three dwarf one of the three dwarf nobles of Ironforge. Muradin, Magni, and Bran are the three brothers who are the high who are the leaders of, of the king of the kingdom of Ironforge. And Muradin is an old friend of Arthas, you know, prince, brother of the king, you know. They, they get along. They meet each other a lot. They they were fast friends. Murden is the one who tra- who taught Arthas to fight before Uther taught him to be a paladin. And so, Murden has been in Northrend looking for an ancient artifact called Frostmourne, which is said to be a magical sword of unimaginable power. And Arthas believes that this sword could help him save his people. So. He pledges to save Muradin's to save Muradin's dwarves who are with him and being assaulted by the undead, and to help him find Frostmourne so he can use it against Malganus. While he's there, Uther speaks to Terence and makes him call off the expedition. He sends an emissary to to Arthas's men who tell who, and he tells Arthas's men to pack up and get going. Time to get back to Lordaeron. You, you're leaving Northrend. Arthas finds out about this and says, no, this is not happening. He leaves with Muradin and recruits a bunch of mercenaries from Northrend to travel down the coast while his men are cutting their way through the woods and burn all of their ships. You can't leave. You're following me with this to the end. But he, pa- well, uh, he passes it off to his men yeah. by saying that these mercenaries were marauding monsters who had killed, who had burned all of the ships. Not uh, not at his command, but that they were just marauding creatures. Yeah, I was saying, you have to include the fact that he, he hired these mercenaries to br- help him burn the ships. And then, and then, bla- and then blamed the mercenaries for burning the ships and killed them. Yes. No, didn't just blame them. Killed them. Killed them. Nice. And so Muradin is beginning to see that something is wrong with Arthas. What's happened to you, Arthas? You lied to your men and betrayed those who fought for you. Is vengeance all that matters to you? Is, I believe, as far like I think I'm getting... That's exactly the line. That's exactly his line. (laughs) If you can't tell, Shadow Chorus plays a little bit of Warcraft. Just a little bit. And Muradin is getting a little bit hesitant as he leads Arthas closer and closer to Frostmourne. Until they finally get there. As, as Arthas and his men are defending against the undead, Murden and Arthas head towards Frostmourne's chamber, where it is being held. And even then, the Guardians who are protecting it fight to the last, and according to the Guardian, is trying to protect him, Arthas, from Frostmourne. And this gets Murden a little bit anxious. He, get, he gets to Frostmourne's chamber and sees the sword floating there encased in ice. And he says, there's an inscription on the dais. He looks at it. And I can see if I can remember this, this, this passage. Whomsoever takes up this blade shall wield power eternal. But just as the blade rends flesh, so must power scar the spirit. That's exactly it. Is the inscription on the dais. And Murrin realizes that the sword is cursed. He says, we should just leave. Pack up and go home. Find another way. Arthas says, no. We've gone too far. This is the turning point. Now it's not just about his people. It's about getting vengeance against Melganus. And so he said, he, maybe I'll get this one perfect too. Spirits of this place, hear me. 
I will gladly do anything or pay any price if you will only help me save my people. And that might, that might be a few words off. No, I think that's almost exactly right, too. <laughs> He's played this a lot. <laughs> I, just, I just got done playing the Warcraft 3 campaign. Yeah, yeah. On stream. So, um, the, ice, the ice prison around Frostmourne shatters, severely wounding Murden in the process. As far as Arthas knows, he's dead. And Arthas claims the sword, leaves his hammer, which is his signature weapon as a paladin, behind. Claims the sword, Frostmourne, and leaves, leaving Murden for dead. He doesn't just leave it, though. He throws the hammer down. Yeah, he just tosses tosses it aside aside like nothing. And takes the sword. And leaves Murden for dead. Both literally and metaphorically, leaving behind his paladin training. (laughs) And from there, he takes Frostmourne and leads his men to kill Malganus. And succeeds. And succeeds. He takes down the undead with the power of Frostmourne and destroys Malganus. But Frostmourne is cursed. It is the sword of Ner'zhul who created the undead scourge. The sword has been slowly eating away at his soul ever since he came into contact with it. And Ner'zhul was leading him to Northrend to get him to take up the sword. So he could become his champion. So, while Arthas wanders Northrend after killing Malganus, the sword slowly eats away at his mind and drives him to become the first of the Lich King's Death Knights. And that's his turn. He's gone from the paladin who would give anything to protect his people to the Death Knight who will kill them all. Nice. And this, and this changes all over the universe. Everyone who has dealt with the horrors of war comes out different for it. Sometimes massively different, like Arthas, and sometimes only slightly different, like Grom. Grom. And, some, and sometimes it changes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Grom Hellscream was always, had an iron wheel. He was always, he was always strong and aggressive. When Gul'dan... Sorry. He, no, no. Uh, when, when, when Gul'dan gave him the option of drinking the blood of Manoroth, the demon who offered his blood to the orcs, to become a greater warrior, he took it almost without hesitation. He didn't realize that it would mean paying the price of basically the soul of his people. And so, when he's defeated, he basically goes into depression. He realizes that he's basically cost his people everything. Uh, and then Thrall comes around and says, hey, we can come back. We can be better. Thrall being the one character who never changes his views. Yeah. He's the one character who stays steadfast in his beliefs. He's, he changes in other ways. Yeah. But his beliefs never change. His rules never change. Um, and so Thrall becomes this beacon to Grom. He becomes like a brother to Grom. And Grom would do anything for Thrall. Because Thrall is basically the hope for his people to come back better than they were. But eventually, Grom ends up in Kalimdor with Thrall, and he's sent up north to create an establishment in the Ashenvale Forest, where he's attacked by the Night Elves. He's building, he's building, he's building, he's chopping down trees to build a settlement in Ashenvale, and the Night Elves take offense to the orcs encroaching in their sacred land and chopping down their trees. They attack. And they almost overwhelm him. But 
his people sense a source of power in the forest. They find it and discover that it's a pool of blood. Once again, Manoroth's blood. I find it interesting that the second time they drink Manoroth's blood, their skin turned red back to their original color. It's a reinfusion. No, their skin was originally brown. I thought it was like a, a ranging from like a dusty brown yellow to red. It's kind of a dust. It's always a dusty brown. There, there weren't any really red orcs. Yeah. Um, so it was always a dusty brown to a grayish. Okay. Um, so when they he and Manoroth's blood again, and so he tells his warriors to drink from the blood again, and so they become even more powerful. They become chaos orcs. They become red. They become even stronger. And they overwhelm Cenarius, the demigod who had been fighting them, and who had been a thorn in the side of the Burning Legion, the demons who had been attempting to take Azeroth for centuries, for millennium. Were Malganus and Manoroth. Like Malganus, Manoroth, Archimonde, the demons who created the Scourge and lead the Burning Legion, have been trying to take Azeroth for centuries, millennium. Thousands of years. Yes, millennium. And so... Uh, they, fir- they first used the orcs in the first time that Manoroth gave them their blood to try and weaken Azeroth to take it. They failed. They made the scourge. The scourge worked a little bit. They brought. They t- decided to bring the orcs back with Manoroth's blood again. So Grom drinks the blood and kills Cenarius. Trying. Um, but then he realizes that he's basically sold himself out to Manoroth again. And then he... Uh, it- of the course of the the fighting on the in in that continent, uh, Thrall makes up, his way up, yeah. up, up north, where he realizes that Grom has been taken by Manoroth again, and works with Jaina, who he's been forced to align with, to bring him back and save him, purify him. And then they take the fight to Manoroth, and they go and fight Manoroth. And Grom sacrifices himself, himself. Yeah, redeems himself by sacrificing himself to kill Manoroth. Yeah, and there's Grom's change. He went from the man who damned his people to the man who saved them. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, well, I feel like the big two things that have kept both of those series going was they evolved. Yeah. They had a concept theme that they evolved. I feel like the, the failing of Ultima was it evolved in the beginning. Ultima 1 to Ultima 2 to Ultima 3 to Ultima 4 were big steps in RPG, in the RPG world. Mm-hmm. Ultima 4 to Ultima 9... Not as big of a change. Um, He's mostly going back and changing what he had already done. Yeah, I mean, he retconned a lot of things. And instead of trying to bring the series forward, he was like, whoa, well, I don't like what I did, so I'm actually just going to change that. Yeah, so rather than rather than bringing the series forward, he ended up getting stuck in the past. Yeah, and he got obsessed with his lore of the world to the point where um, in Which, one of the games, he expected you to learn his runic alphabet to read. Yeah. Signs. Being stuck in the past is another theme of, of Final Fantasy games, specifically Final Fantasy XIII. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and ultimately, I feel like that's what the downfall is, and that's what still he, he didn't uh, he never adapt to the th- to the 3D barrier. He just didn't he do did, anything he, he 3D. Didn't, he didn't evolve like the yeah. rest of like these other series that we've mentioned did. did um, he didn't keep moving forward. He kind so, of stagnated. Yeah. So what was some of the what was there ever like a through line? The, the the through line entered in Ultima Four, which was so the the, the, the eight, the eight virtues. Can. Yeah, yeah, um, being the greatest person that you can be, and and the other through line were the characters. Mm-hmm. 
um, Shimino, Yolo, Lord British himself. Yeah. Um, but uh, and it, it was really just the the Ultima Four was embodying the the eight virtues, and the eight virtues were constant themes. You know, there was always, you know, everything was set against. Well, you know, how does how does this line up with the virtues? And and that was really the the standby. But it, there was never the this. The stories were very much the same D and D style stories. They yeah. were same characters, new setting, or not even new setting. Same characters, new story. Same characters, new story. So the focus, the focus of the Ultimate Games was more on the world itself. Yeah, the world, the, the lore, um, and not the character. The characters didn't evolve. Shimino yeah. was always Shimino. Yolo was always Yolo. They're great characters, but they didn't change. The Avatar was supposed to be the embodiment of you. And so very little characterization was put into the avatar. Um, you know, you made your own, you made your own choices. You had some choices, but it almost sounds like from the description we got earlier that the most interesting characters in the Ultimate series was the wizard and his wife and his son. <laughs> <laughs> was the evil? Was the evil characters were the most interesting characters in I mean, the series? There were certainly interesting characters. I love Yolo. I love Shimino. I don't need every game to be Yolo Shimino. Yeah. Um, th- those are the two most common characters. There's, there's several other reoccurring characters. Was there ever like an emotional theme through any of the games? Um, anything like anything like you know each Final Fantasy game has an emotion or a feeling or a concept. No, they're they're very the, the stories play out very much like a D and D campaign would. Mm-hmm. Um, it's defeat this big enemy, stop this great tragedy, solve this great mystery. Okay. They're not. They're not about the development of characters and emotions. Okay. Um, which I think is part of what led to the stagnation. Yeah, because you can only beat you can only beat the great enemy so many times before you'd like to do something interesting like yeah. pottery. You, you can you can only be the the you can only become the avatar once. After that, you are the avatar. Which is which is kind of an interesting. Which kind of, could be. Which is kind of an interesting like comparison between Ultima and Warcraft because they they're both about the worlds, but Warcraft is about how the world changes. It's about yeah. how the people in it change and how the world changes you. And yeah. and they don't retcon things they don't like. Well, well they've, they've they've done a little bit of retcon, but it's mostly to keep things like to keep, it's retcon for consistency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well. Final Fantasy VII doesn't have to retcon because it's all different. It's all, it's all new worlds. Yeah. <laughs> with with very few exceptions. Um, we've had a lot to talk about, at least in, in regards to uh, Final Fantasy and Warcraft. Yeah. And, and, and Ultima uh, 4. Ultimate, <laughs> the Ultimate series is, is a very interesting series. It, it's not as long running. Um, it, well, no, it started, it started before all the yeah. rest. So it's longer running than Warcraft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not as long running as Final, Final Fantasy. Fantasy because it's not going still. <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting from the standpoint is that's where RPG started. Yeah, was the Ultimate series, um, but it, it ran into the same thing Wizardry did was it kept trying to do what it had been doing. Yeah, and there comes a point where you need to innovate more than refine. Yeah, so. Hmm. So I think we, I think we've had a we've had a, at the very least interesting to listen to uh, <laughs> conversation today, and this is a, sort of a topic that I think we could go into a lot more later, mm-hmm. like because we've only touched on story 
yeah. right now. When we, we can talk about another another game series I love that really had an interesting history is the Sonic game yeah, series because they ran right off a cliff. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we can we, we we've talked about story right now. We can talk about mechanics more on another episode. If there's a if there's a long running series that you the listeners want us to talk about or go into or dive deep on, uh, or if there's another aspect of these long running stories that we've talked about that you'd like us to talk about, please let us know uh, in comments or in emails. Um, you can find me Sinstaku uh, on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Sinstaku and on Twitter where I'm at John A. Bates. You can also email me directly for any comments, concerns, or suggestions regarding the podcast or any other, or anything else that I do at john.a.bates at hotmail.com. Uh, and you can find Units. I'm on Twitter at Units, U-K-N-I-T-S, and uh, I, I make appearances on Sense Taku Street. And Shadow Chorus? Uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Shadow Chorus, and you can find me on Twitter at Shadow underscore Chorus. And you can email me at wbates95 at gmail.com. Other than that, you'll also find me on Sensaku Streams, usually twice a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, anywhere you look for me, I'm probably Shadow Chorus. Yep. Uh, and I think that's it uh, for, for today. So thank yep. you all very much for listening to us um and we will talk again next week uh thank you and have a good day bye-bye bye I played it once, and I had never heard anything about it before. I'm like, oh, these Zergs look fun. And I accidentally Zerg rushed everybody Just to death. Make lots make lots, and lots of Zerglings. And they were oh. like, have you played this game before? Like, no, honestly, I just like, it seemed like a good, it seemed like a good strategy. <coughs> so what we're saying is the title of this podcast is Zerg Rush. Like,